Hope you guys are all doing well. If you have a Bible with you, if you want to find the book of Acts, we are working through a series in the book of Acts that we started, I don't know when we started it, the beginning of this year. Oh, hello, Marcus. Good to see you, my friend. Marcus is, uh, he's an old friend. <laughs> Just don't see him very often. Okay. Uh, if you, uh, let me, um, I'm just going to get straight into it this morning. Let me just read from this passage, and then we're going to pray, because we're going to need that this morning, and then see what God has to say to us. Okay, this is from uh, Acts chapter 5, the first 11 verses. It says this, But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for this book, the Bible, your word. Uh, we believe that What's in this book is life to us, is food for our souls, is water, refreshment to us when we're thirsty and in need. And uh, we just want to ask this morning that you would help just come and apply these words to our hearts, this terrifying story. We just pray that you would use it to strengthen us and to do us good today. We thank you that you are a a holy God. And we just want to come and submit our hearts to you this morning and just say, Jesus, would you have your way, would your will be done in this place today and in all of our hearts, would we know you in a deeper, fresher way this morning? Amen. Amen. I was uh, talking to my mum and dad yesterday. They live uh, in England. We were just talking uh, on FaceTime, and uh, I was telling them I was preaching from this passage this morning, and they said, oh yeah, well, many years ago, they were leading a kids' ministry 
And they said, we had to act out that story to a bunch of eight-year-olds. I'm like, wow, how do, you, how do you act out that story? Well, I mean, it's quite obvious how you act it out, but I don't know how you act out the story without a whole load of eight-year-olds being thoroughly disturbed afterwards. But they did it, so there you go. Well done, mum and dad. <laughs> the reality is this story isn't, it's not just disturbing for, for eight-year-olds, it's, it's kind of a disturbing story for all of us. And often you'll hear people say, we might have even said it here, that we want our church to be like the church in the book of Acts. You know, people hunger after, this is like the prototype church. This is how it's supposed to be done. If we could just get our church back to what it was like in the book of Acts. But when you read this story and you think, I'm not sure I want my church to be like this church. That's a, a frightening story of what happens here. And there are lots of other stories in the book of Acts as well that would make you think, I'm not sure I really want... You know, we're going to come across Stephen in a few chapters who gets stoned to death. We find Peter and Paul who regularly get thrown in prison and are whipped and abused in many different ways. James in chapter 12 who's martyred for his faith. There's lots of stories in this book which I'm not sure we really want that to be our experience of church life. And what's happened here is... Uh, if you remember back to the end of Acts chapter 4, it says there in verse 31 that they'd had this prayer meeting and the place where they gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God came upon the people and then you saw how at the end of chapter 4 they had everything in common. They're sharing all their possessions. Barnabas brings and lays at the apostles' feet the proceeds of a field that he's, he's sold. And then chapter 5 begins, but a man named Ananias, their story is rather different. Whereas in Acts chapter 4, they've been filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter says to him, why has Satan filled your heart? It's not the Holy Spirit anymore, but for Ananias, Satan has filled his heart. And Satan has prompted him to, to test God, to lie to the Holy Spirit. And the conclusion you have to come to is that Ananias and Sapphira, they're, they're phony Christians. They're fake Christians. Their sin's really one of hypocrisy. But even hypocrisy itself is not, doesn't necessarily mean just because you're a hypocrite that you are going to die. Even in a few chapters, we find Simon the magician who becomes a believer in Jesus. We'll read a story in Acts chapter 8. And he, he tries to buy the Holy Spirit. He offers them money for it. And again, Peter rebukes him of being a hypocrite. And he doesn't die, though. We find this story here, which we have to be real about it. I don't want to sort of sugarcoat this story. It is disturbing, I think. I find it disturbing to read it, what happens to Ananias and Sapphira. I think it's disturbing for two reasons. First of all, that we can all think of ways that we've been hypocrites. It seems here from the story that they don't want to give all their money. They don't have to give it all. Peter says it was theirs at their disposal to do as they wish. But they lied. They held it back. Something about the love of money had gripped their hearts. But we can all 
tell stories of times where we've loved money more than we've loved God. Where we've had opportunities to give money away and thought, no, I'd rather keep it to myself. And here, they, not only do they want to give it away, not want to give it all away, but they, they want to appear more generous than they are. So they agree between themselves that they'll lie and say, oh, this is the whole amount. They, they want to show themselves to be, they want to be like Barnabas in the story before. Barnabas gets his name in this book. He's kind of commended as this hero for what he's done. And they're looking on thinking, yeah, I want some of that. I want, to, I want to appear to be righteous. I want, I, want people, I want everyone to know how wonderful I am. And again, we can all say, yeah, I've, I've been like that. There are times I've, I've wanted to people to know how good a Christian I am. I want people to know how good a husband I am or how good a dad I am. And when our kids are playing up, so don't, don't, play, don't play up in church because people will then see people might realize that I'm not perfect, that I'm, I'm, I'm weak. We don't want people to see that side of ourselves, so we hide it. We can relate to Ananias and Sapphira. Ultimately, it says Peter accuses them of that they've lied to the Holy Spirit, that they've put God to the test. And again, we can all tell stories of ways that we've lied to God, well, we've tried to shield off parts of our lives. Think, I'll just live like this. I'll just do this thing. I'll think this thought. I'll go down this route. And somehow, even though we know it's impossible, even though we know that God sees and knows all, we try and close it off. We hide it from God. I think that's the first reason we find this story so disturbing is so we can relate to their story. But perhaps the main reason we find it so disturbing is we think, but surely if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you read this story and you think, but my God isn't like this. My God doesn't do things like this. He doesn't just wipe people out. He just doesn't just blot them off the map. He just doesn't just get rid of them because they failed. I think that's why we find this story so hard to get our head around because we think, surely God isn't like this. So let's try and answer that question of why, why, would, why would God do this? Why would, why would he see fit to act in this way? that Ananias and Sapphira are both breathed their last and uh, died and buried. Well, the answer is, I'll give you an answer and then we'll try and unpack it a little bit. The answer is what this story is trying to tell us. The reason that Luke put this in the book of Acts, Luke who wrote the book, because this, the book of Acts covers about a 30-year period of history and he gives us it doesn't give us the whole story of the church. I'm sure there's a lot that happens in 30 years. He gives us his kind of edited highlights. Just the kind of, the, the, the bits he really wants us to see. So there's obviously a reason he's decided that this should be in here. I think what he's trying to communicate to us is that God is determined to protect his church. 
Elsewhere, the Bible describes the church as the bride of Christ. That somehow God is married to the church. That there's a union between God and his people. That to be a follower of Jesus, to be part of a community of believers, that you're somehow in this sort of eternal marriage union. Us as the bride, him as the husband. And God as the husband of this church, he is determined to protect his bride. And if you're a husband here, or if you're a wife here, you feel the same way. The love that you have to your spouse, or if you're a parent, the love you have to your children, or, or the love you have towards your own parents, is there are, there are times when that love will be determined to protect them. You know, when you see that they're ill, or that they're suffering, or they're in pain, or they're under attack, you will do whatever you can to fix that situation, to protect your loved ones. And God's the same. He's determined to protect his church, his people. And why is, why is God so determined to do that? Well, first of all, because as we've been talking about over the last few weeks, the, the church is, this is God's new temple. The people of God, this is where God has chosen to to dwell. This is where God lives. There's no temple we have to go to in Jerusalem on a, a, an act of pilgrimage to find, where's God? Is he there? No, God, he's here. It's the promise of the Bible now, of the, the new covenant that we live in, is that God dwells, he lives with his people. And the, the original temple that we read about in the Old Testament was a, it was a holy place. You've got the Holy of Holies at the center of this building where the divine presence of God is. And that now resides in the church, in his people. And he's determined to keep it holy because it's where he lives. You know, when you move into a new home, probably the first thing you'll do, particularly if it's dirty, is that you'll clean it. You know, you open up the fridge and, oh, there's mold in, let's get rid of that. Open up the cupboards, oh, let's clean this. And you, you, particularly before you put everything in the house, you do the clean that you'll probably never do again. You do a deep clean of the property. You know, you get into all the nooks and crannies and corners and you just get it as clean as you possibly can. And in the same way, God's moved into his new home to live with the people of God. And he's cleaning it up. Secondly, why would God do this? Why is God so determined to protect his church, his bride? Is that not only does God dwell in the church, but as I said, he's, there's this union, this marriage between Jesus and the church, which is it's difficult to get our head around. It's a bit of a mystery, is one way the Bible describes it, but it's wonderfully true. There's another story in the book of Acts that we'll get to in a few weeks' time in chapter 9 where Saul, who's been persecuting the church, who later becomes Paul in the story. Saul, he's, he's traveling on the road to Damascus. He's been persecuting the church, dragging Christians away, throwing them into jail. He was there when Stephen is stoned to death. 
And Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus. The famous story. But Jesus says to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Which is quite a profound thing for Jesus to say. Because Saul could have answered, I mean he didn't because, you know, the living God speaking to him, so he knew to shut up. But he could have said, well, I'm not persecuting you. I'm just persecuting all these people. Jesus didn't come and say, why are you persecuting my church? Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And that's an important distinction. That's a lesson there for us, is that Jesus is saying that this, this church's people, there's this union that's taken place. And I would feel the same if someone attacks my wife, she's attacking me. You know, other language the Bible uses to talk about the church is as the body of Christ. That somehow we're all fingers and toes and nostrils and arms and legs of, of the body with Christ as the head. And that's not just a metaphor, it's not just a picture, it's not just an analogy to help us, but something about that is true. That we are part of something together united with Christ in a deep, real way. And again, that means that God will furiously want to protect that. If someone comes at your leg with an ax, you will protect your leg. In this story, someone is coming at his church and God's determined to protect it. Now, perhaps we struggle with this story because in our culture, we're trained to think so Individually, where our lives have compartmentalized to ourselves or perhaps to our own family unit. I think 2,000 years ago, when they first read this story, or the people even heard it at the time, I don't think they would have read the story as the way that we read the story. We read the story and we feel, I don't know what we feel, but we, we read about Ananias and Sapphira, maybe it's empathy or sympathy or shock. How could this happen to these people? I think 2,000 years ago, they read this story and thought, wow, look how much God cares for his church. Because they would have lived in so much more of a communal way of life. They understood that this book, when it talks about what it is to know God, is to be part of a people that they knew to be saved, to become a follower of Jesus isn't just an individual activity, but you step into a, a family. You step into brothers and sisters. You step into a, the people of God, the church. And he's determined to protect it. Thirdly, I think God's so determined to do it because he's working out his restoration plan. That's something that, that God initiates on the day of Pentecost. He pours his spirit on, on his people. This new age begins where God's building his new kingdom on this earth. And restoration involves both creation, bringing to life what's new and good, but also destruction, getting rid of what's sinful and bad. And you see, even in the miracle stories of the book of Acts, in chapter 3, where the layman is healed, in the next part of Acts chapter 5, we read about lots of signs and wonders that are taking place. And miracles in the Bible 
We see them as extraordinary things, things that are out of the blue, things that seem to be against nature, whereas God sees them as, as totally normal, as him just restoring the world to what it should be. Every time someone gets healed, in the eyes of God, it's just restoring what, to what it, to the original intention, to God's purpose, God's plan, bringing back his original creative ideal of what the world should look like. And this story fits within that. God's destroying something because he's building something. He's breathing life into his world. And fourthly, and I think perhaps the most important point, why does God so much determine to protect his bride? It's because he cares about purity. He cares about the holiness of the church. Now, holiness, particularly if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, Holiness sounds like a, an old concept. Uh, it's just a religious construct. You know? It's just something that religious people talk about. It's not a real thing. It's just a word people use to control other people. You know, you're not being holy enough. Work harder. It's just religious language. But I think the age we live in yearns and desires for holiness far more than we realize. You know, the whole Me Too movement of the last five, ten years, it's a holiness movement. That's what it's about. It's looking at the brokenness in society and saying the world should not be like that. It's looking at the lack of purity. It's looking at all the hurt and pain that's been caused and saying, surely we can have a better world. Surely the way men treat women should be better than this. Surely we can have a purer society. It's, it's a holiness movement. And we, we yearn for that in our world. We, we want healing to take place. We, 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 we desire purity in our relationships. It's because God's put that impulse in our hearts whether you're a follower of Jesus or not it's, it's there and we this word holiness it, it can sound like it can sound like medicine you know it, it, I've got a bit of a cold I'm battling a flu that's gone around our family and uh, you know when you have a cold there's we've got a range of different treatments none of them seem to work and we've got this cupboard in our kitchen the back of the cupboard is this yellow stuff in a pot. And I know if I take that yellow stuff, it'll make me feel better, but it tastes horrible. It's really bad. I don't want to know what's in it. I, I dare not ask what's in that yellow stuff. But it, I know it will do me good. It's the worst medicine that we have, and it tastes horrible. And we can, we can read holiness as Christians in the same way as, oh, it just sounds like medicine. It just sounds like the stuff that's at the back of the cupboard that I don't want to take. But holiness, it, it's not like that at all. The word holy means to be set apart. 
and we think, well, if it means to be set apart, and if God's holy, which he is, we tend to read that, not, we tend to think, oh, does that mean that God just doesn't like us? He just doesn't, he just sees himself as better than us on a pedestal. Ugh, you dirty people, I'm holy. Ugh, look at you. To be, for, for God to be holy, for him to be set apart, it's not that it's sometimes we can see holiness as, well, God's, he's a loving God, but he, he's also a holy God, as though they're two separate concepts, but they're actually all the one and the same thing. You see, God's holiness in its purest form is the perfect love you see between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just at the center of the Trinity. It's perfect love. If you read John 17, it talks about how much the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. There's this perfect love, that's holiness. It talks about in the Psalms that we should worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. In the Bible, holiness is not evil, cold medicine. It's, it's beauty. It's splendor. It's love. It's the way the world should be. It's the way relationships should be. It's the love that we receive from God. It's holy. It's pure. It's perfect. It's, it's good. You know, in Leviticus 19, it says, be holy because I am holy. But then the outworking of that is how we love people and how we love God. That's what it is to, to, the outworking of being holy is to love people, is to love God. It's completely united with this idea of love. See, and we mustn't be naive about sin. Perhaps that's why we really fail to get our heads around the idea of holiness and why God would act like he does in this story is because we become so naive about the destructive power of sin in your life. And again, we just think, oh, it's just another religious word. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything, but it, sin is so destructive. And the lie that Satan wraps it all up in is that, is that it's just personal. You know, the worst you can do is you'll, you'll sin against yourself. You know? Sin's never like that. It's never just personal. Sin's always corporate. It will always affect your relationships. It just, it just does. You can say, well, I could look at pornography. It doesn't, it's just me and a, and a computer screen. Why does that affect anybody else? But in the way it will re-engineer you in how you think about sex in how you view the opposite sex. That will affect all of your relationships. It will. Sin is, it's so often it's like we're just juggling a, a hand grenade and we just pull the pin out and look at it and think, oh, this doesn't look that dangerous. But when it goes off, the, the shrapnel doesn't just hurt you, it will 
spray everywhere. It will hit, hit and hurt people around you. See, God, he cares about purity and holiness in the church. It's not because he's just trying to impose like a cold, harsh legislation on us. It's because he loves us. He loved this church in Acts 5. He loved it. And he was just shocked to see such disregard for it that they were just treating the community of God with such contempt. You see, God's wrath even is good. And again, that's a, it's a difficult concept to get our head around. Maybe you can make your peace with holiness, maybe not being a bad thing. But how could wrath, how could the, the anger of God, surely that's just an old, you know, the Old Testament God, he's angry, but the New Testament God, he's not like that. But it's the same God. He doesn't change. And you might think, well, look, my, as we said at the beginning, my God just, just isn't like this. My God doesn't get angry. He's not full of wrath. But if that's how you view God, I would say just, you need to be, I'd question that for you. If you don't think that God can become angry at sin, if you don't think that God become, can be angry at evil, because there is, there is evil in our world. There is sin, in, even in our own hearts. And if God just turns a blind eye, just lets it go, I don't want to live in a world like that. A world where there's no justice, where there's no judge who says, one day there will be a recompense. One day. You see, in God's, He is, does have wrath, anger towards evil. But again, it's because, it's because He loves us. It says in Romans, Romans chapter 12, let love be genuine let love be sincere as whatever translations will say let love be genuine abhor or hate what is evil hold fast to what is good that's what paul's saying us is telling us is that's what genuine love hates what is evil and hold fast to what is good and that's how god loves he hates what is evil. He hates what, whatever will hurt his bride. He hates it. And again, as, as a, a husband, as a parent, as a, as a son of my parents, anything that would be evil towards them, I'm going to hate that. <laughs> and I, I just, I want good for them, you know? And that's, that's exactly how God views us, that he wants good for us. 
You see, one thing I've been trying to get my head around all week with this passage is that Ananias, his name, uh, his name means Yahweh is gracious. <laughs> you think, really? But he is. You see, this is what happens. This story, this story is it's an act of his grace on the church. Now, how do we respond to this? What do we do with this? It says here in this story that, which well, says it twice, firstly after what happens to Ananias and then what, after what happens to Sapphira, it says great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. See, fear again in the Bible is not a bad thing. It's a, a reverent, holy fear and, and honor of God in our hearts. It says in Hebrews 2 to not neglect the great salvation that God has for us. And God calls all of us to live like that. He talks in Philippians about how we're to work out our salvation with, with fear and trembling. Is that God, he, he loves us. He's so determined to protect us. He's, he's called you into this deep, profound, mystical marriage union with him. I don't want to neglect that. And if this story teaches us anything, it teaches us that we're, our salvation is completely undeserved. That we, we can all relate to Ananias and Sapphira. That we, we know that we're all sinful, that we're all broken, that we've all done or said or thought, perhaps even this week, perhaps even today, impure, unholy things. We all deserve the same fate, but by his grace. We're saved by his grace alone, by his love, by his mercy, his kindness alone. And what we need, well, I don't want you to go away today and and just be motivated out of fear to try harder. That's the wrong kind of fear. The kind of fear that it talks about here is a sense of, I just need more of God. Because as I said at the start, the difference in this story is that in Acts chapter four, it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit and then it changed how they lived towards one another. But what's happened in Ananias, with Ananias and Sapphira that they've been filled with Satan. And the most appropriate response this morning is to come to God and say, I just need more of you. Holy Spirit, would you just come and fill me? Just come and help me. Because we, we sometimes diminish it in his name, but the Holy Spirit is, he's holy. He is it's the holy presence of God. Talks about in John 16, Jesus says this really remarkable thing to them. He says, nevertheless, I'll tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. We can sometimes think, what would make my faith really easy if like Jesus was just here? Like, 
hey, Jesus, you know, Jesus, my buddy, I'll take him wherever I go, take him to work tomorrow, take him to bed tonight. If just Jesus was there with me, life would be so easy. But Jesus says to us, no, no, no. It, it's to your advantage that I go so I can send the Holy Spirit to you. But then the next verse, it says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You think, hold on, Jesus. I thought you said it was better that the Holy Spirit came and he's just gonna come and convict us. Ugh, that doesn't sound good. I'm not sure I'm up for that. But that is wonderfully good. Some of you might think, I don't, you know, sometimes we talk about God speaking to us or we talk about experiencing the presence of God. You think, I'm not sure I've ever felt that. But if you've ever felt conviction in your heart, that's God moving. That's the Holy Spirit at work in your heart. Maybe you've felt that already this morning. You're just aware of things in your life where you've been trying to lie to God. You've just been trying to hide things away. There's parts of your life that you just don't want anyone else to see. You're just imagining that perhaps God hasn't noticed that bit. Maybe patterns of behavior, ways of thinking that you just know they're just not godly. And you're just feeling that. You're reading this story and you're thinking, oh goodness, well that, that's, a, that's a good way to think. That's the Holy Spirit. He's at work. And just like, just like how God is towards us, just how his holiness is just so intertwined with his love, when the Holy Spirit comes to convict you, that's his, that's his grace coming to you. That's him speaking to you. That's him coming to fill your heart. It's just his, just his tender voice, just calling you home. I'm gonna pray for us and then we'll share communion together. Why don't you just stand to your feet and let's just come to God in our hearts. Jesus, we, we just wanna recognize this morning that that you're a holy God. And that's, that's a, a good thing. It's not somehow different or separate from your love, but it's one and the same thing. You're a, a God of holy love towards your people. And you're determined to protect us, that you care for us so deeply, so intimately, so tenderly. And when you see the sin that pollutes us, it's not that you, you wanna therefore say, well, enough, the end, is you just wanna pour out your love and blessing. And I just pray that help us, none of us wanna respond like Ananias and Sapphira. They, they, were, they weren't real Christians. Their fakeness found them out. But for each one of us, we have a, an opportunity just to, just to repent this morning. 
just to come and say, God, I don't want to live like that anymore. And as you do that, his mercy will just flood into your heart. His goodness will come. When the Holy Spirit speaks to you, even if it's to bring conviction of sin, that's it's always good news. It always comes with his grace. It always comes with his care, his love towards his people. And we just want to ask right now, would you just tenderly come to our hearts, help us to see where, where you want us to change, not so that we can somehow earn anything, we're saved, we've already wonderfully been welcomed into your family, but God, we, we want to become more like you. Help us to see where we can do that. And would you fill us with your power that will enable us to do that? We just say, Holy Spirit, we're really quite useless without you. We need you. Fill us, equip us so that we can work out our great salvation with, with honor and reverence toward you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.